Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining the Firm Transitions podcast today. Really appreciate your time. I can't believe how fast the year is going. We're just about to close up our third quarter, and I figured it would just be a good idea to kind of give you a recap of what has gone on this year because so much has gone on in the recruiting world. And I decided to bring on uh, no one better than Jeff Nash, the the CEO and co-founder of Bridgemark, uh, to help you all get a solid update. Jeff, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Thanks, everyone. So, Jeff, we were just talking about this the other day, but there are so many things that have gone on this year. Uh, and the first thing that I just wanted to talk about, this has been one of the biggest recruiting years ever in the industry from what I've seen. And I think a huge driver of that has just been from an economic standpoint. And I think there's a lot of reasons why economics are at an all-time high right now. You know, private equity investing a lot of money in the space, interest rates rising and making broker dealers extremely, extremely profitable. And, and also just the overall arms race that's out there to try to attract top talent. One broker dealer will up their ante from a from an offer standpoint and, and the rest will follow suit over and over again. But both on the independent side and the employee side, offers are just surprising me every single day. From what I've seen on the independent side, where, you know, seven, eight years ago, when I was the recruiter at LPL, the absolute highest we can offer someone was, you know, 30% of trailing 12 revenue for a truly top tier advisor. And now almost every firm out there in the industry is north of 50%, some exceeding 100% of trailing 12 production. So definitely really interesting times. And then on the employee side, I just got an email the other day from a top tier, from a, from a wirehouse that was you know 200% upfront with the ability to make another 200% on, 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 on the back end. So extremely high offers there as well. You should never make your decision purely based off of economics, but those are just those are just economics that are really hard to ignore and at least not pick up your head and explore a little bit. You know, it's so right, Corey. I mean, I, I say that all the time. And, and just, uh, you know, even before we jump into the topic, what I do want to say is you've been doing a great job of educating advisors out there in the marketplace and, and people should definitely go check out your YouTube channel. Uh, this will also get posted up on the Bridgemark Strategy site on the Bridge to Change podcast as well for everyone. Uh, and so that's the, um, you know, just as a lot of information and, and education is empowering. And this topic is so educational and so informational for advisors. And that's why I think it's great that you're bringing it up. It, to me, the, the foundation of what you just said is exactly what the last statement you made is, if you've been working at a firm for five or 10 or more years at the same firm, then you really should be looking around and just picking your head up and seeing what's out there. That This is not necessarily a time to switch firms. It's not a time to not switch firms. Um, but because of the amount of money that's being offered to folks, it absolutely can compensate you if you are thinking about switching firms and at a minimum can compensate you for your time for looking around. And that's the beauty of this thing. As a fiduciary, as a financial advisor who's a fiduciary to their clients, they almost owe it to their clients to be looking around in the marketplace to make sure they're at the right firm for their for their clients that's offering the right services and the technology. You know, when we talk about the deals, 
I, I think it's really important, you know, and love to have you weigh in on this as well. But I think it's really important as we think about why have deals continue to get get higher and higher. I mean, going back, I've been in this longer than you. When I was a recruiter at LPL back in the in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, 2% was the maximum we could do. So it's changed a lot. And and two percent was you know including free stationery for you know a five hundred dollar credit towards stationery it was literally maxed out at two percent. So how do firms afford it? You know one of the ways that firms are affording this, and this is definitely something to understand in the marketplace how deals have shifted from the last five years, which was a big jump up, to where they are today, which was another big. It was a step up what we saw about five years ago and what we're seeing today. And today, what's happening is interest rates you know, with Fed funds upwards of 5%, 500 basis points, that generates a lot of profitability on cash balances. And there's a lot of cash balances in brokerage accounts within these firms. And that profitability is enormous for these firms. It's almost too much profit that really forces them to spend some of that profit down and then use that money to invest in growth. Uh, you know, if you have a firm that grows from one year to the next, especially a publicly traded company, and we'll keep the math really simple. If a firm grows from one year to the next and they double their profit, right? Not necessarily double revenue, but double their profit because of the cash balances as a stock. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you would think it's a good thing, but if it's because of just the cash balances and they subject themselves to the following year to potentially being negative or, you know, not having any growth because interest rates don't go up again, then it could be looked as a negative. And so what companies are doing is they're using some of that growth, buying it down for future growth. Well, how do you do that? Instead of taking 100% growth on profit, maybe you take 80 or 70% growth on profit and use that delta, that differential, and invest that in new recruiting deals to attract more advisors. And that's one simple example of why firms are offering a lot more money to their advisors in this economic time, because they have the money to spend that they really want to focus on future growth, not just short term growth. Yeah. And I mean, from a recruiting standpoint this year, we've seen so many corner office wirehouses make the leap over to independence, where in the same scenario we were talking about before, seven years ago, you really just didn't see it that much. You know, 30% of trailing 12 revenue wasn't enough to help an advisor see the opportunity or the forest through the trees and pay off their deferred comp and, you know. And the opportunity cost, right? I mean, they might lose a little bit of business in there and it just doesn't break even, you know? Yeah, without a doubt. I think just another thing to add is, you know, depending on the type of business mix that you have, certain firms prefer different types of businesses yeah. than others and aligning somebody and, and, and having someone help you align you with a firm that's really going to appreciate the type of business that you do is going to help you get the best economics going forward. If you have a really high ROI, you know, some firms pay uh, assets under man uh, basis points of assets under management. Some are going to pay off of trailing 12 production. So depending if you have, you know, a high um, ROI or a low ROI, um, different firms are going to give you better economics than others. Yeah, no question. And, and again, just for everyone's benefit, right? Um, if you're if you have a hundred million dollar book of business and you're generating 1.5 million in revenue on that, that type of a business, even if it's all fee-based asset management, may not get as much as the inverse of that, which would be a hundred million dollar book of business with a seven hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Uh, could actually get more in transition money than that former example. 
you know, and so that that's the that's what you're you're highlighting, and it's definitely firm by firm, and you've got to make sure that the you know the firms themselves are the right fit for you and your goals. Without a doubt, without a doubt. So one more thing I wanted to add, you know, the second part of the economics conversation, there's the upfront portion, right? And then there's the ongoing economics that for the next 10 years at that firm, you're going to be, you know, working with as, as, as you're continuing to grow your business. And another big thing that we're seeing out there in the industry is an arms race on lowering the costs of financial advisors doing business at the independent broker dealer that they choose. So I've mentioned in some of my other videos, one of the most expensive parts of independent, of being an independent advisor is the platform fees that you're going to pay on, on fee-based accounts. And depending on what independent broker dealer you choose, on every $100,000 of revenue that you have, you can be paying anywhere between $25,000 in additional expense by aligning yourself with so I think the other piece when we start talking about economics within the broker dealers, and, and I think when we think about economics and broker dealers, upfront money is very interesting and focused on by advisors. The second piece becomes payout. Uh, and that is the obvious, what is my payout? Among wirehouse advisors and independent advisors, both of them forget to talk about platform and program fees. And wirehouse advisors, it's an entirely new fee structure. They don't even have a platform fee inside of their fee-based accounts, which are typically charged by independent broker-dealers and RIAs. And the independent advisors, while they already have that, they also aren't as focused on it when they look at comparing firms. One of the reasons is because they don't see it in their grid. All independent advisors will typically pay either a program fee or a platform fee, which could be as little as, you know, for per $100,000 of revenue, it could be as little as $20,000 you know, or excuse me, as much as $20,000 per $100,000 of revenue or as little as $2,000. And it's wide ranging when we think about million dollar producers who are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in platform and program fees, you know, versus tens of thousands of dollars in platform and program fees. And so the arms race in transition money gets masked because what can be given in one hand can be taken away in another with a platform and program fee. And this is something that's really important for advisors to understand is what are they paying? The other piece to understand is that arms race or the race to the bottom, you know, or race to the top, depending on your perspective, is also happening in platform and program fees where often these can be negotiated uh, and should absolutely be factored in. The highlight of this whole topic, though, I think, is the fact that firms, once you're at a firm, it becomes very difficult to actually see how much you're paying in platform and program fees because it usually comes out from the top line of the client before it hits your grid. And so we know that it's there if you run the math of what you're getting versus what the client's paying, but it doesn't always show up in your commission reports. And one other thing that I'd add, Jeff, another thing that I'm really seeing from an economic standpoint, I'm seeing a lot of firms really incentivize financial advisors to outsource their money management. Um, yeah. And a, a, a lot of firms in the past, it's been extremely expensive, um, 35, 45, 55, even 65 basis points. And financial advisors haven't been comfortable paying that type of fee, you know, to be able to outsource and get that time back in their day. And that fee comes out in that wirehouse example, when you outsource the money management, that fee is coming out 
of the fee that you were charging your clients at the wirehouse the same way in the example that you mentioned before. So it could wind up making independent practice pretty, not be very profitable pretty quickly. A lot of firms have been saying outsourcing money management is going to help our advisors grow faster, put more time back into their day. They're going to grow their revenue significantly faster. And we're going to incentivize financial advisors through a much lower price to be open to outsourcing. And I'm seeing firms out there anywhere from where it used to be anywhere from 35 to 65 basis points. I'm seeing it 25 basis points, 15 basis points, even zero basis points with the right firm, you know, to help you still run a really profitable practice, but, but grow faster than you ever could before. You know, that it just kind of brings up another topic around outsourcing and, and for today's, you know, discussion, I think that might be a future topic. You know, when I think about outsourcing in general, I think about a lot of advisors, it, it goes in fate in waves of an advisor's business insourcing what could be expensive outsource is a way to lower overall cost to the client. Um, and to for certain advisors, that's the right decision to lower the overall cost of the client by insourcing. And then the, but then from the outsourcing can help drive time and efficiencies for that advisor also. And so it's kind of as advisors go through just iterations of growth within their business, these are things they need to be looking at. Uh, sometimes it's a combination of insourcing and outsourcing, you know, and, and all focused on, you know, service and support and resources for the client. Uh, again, maybe that's something that we talk about in a future podcast, because I think it's a, something a lot of advisors will be interested to, to kind of see where the marketplace is going on that. Yeah, for sure. Hi, it's Corey. I'm jumping into an episode to share a quick note. First, I really hope you're enjoying this conversation and that you found it informative and educational. Second, if you're a high-performing financial advisor considering a transition and you have any questions about the industry landscape, I'd be happy to have a 100% confidential conversation with you at absolutely no cost. And you can reach out to me via text, phone call, LinkedIn, DM, or through my website. All my contact information is in the bottom of the show notes. And if you're interested in learning more about how I help financial advisors find their new home, visit my website, coreywhalen.com, or simply type Corey Whalen into Google and YouTube, and you'll have quick access to all my on-demand educational content right at your fingertips. Now I'll let you get back to the conversation. So we talked about economics, Jeff. I mean, the, the second big thing that I've been seeing this year there's been a few wow moments that I've had at least from a broker dealer consolidation standpoint. We just saw, you know, Satera buy another really large broker dealer of Antax. We've seen a lot of other instances this year. And I was just telling the story to an advisor the other day. If you ever want to do some research on some broker dealers out there, there's an awesome tool in investment news, but I pulled up the top 30 broker dealers by revenue in 2023. And I pulled it up in, in 2017 as well. And when you compare those two, out of the top 30 broker dealers, 2017, only 12 remain in the same name. Only 12. So it's just wild the amount of M&A activity that's been going on in the broker dealer space. And it's something that's really, really important throughout your due diligence process to make sure that you're you're asking the right questions to make sure you're not transitioning from one firm and then a couple of years down the road, transitioning again to another firm for sure. But Jeff, what do you think has been, what do you think has been driving the broker dealer consolidation we've been seeing? 
Well, I think it's it's the consolidation of the industry in the profitability to capture market share. Uh, you know, if we go back and we just look at this industry and we think about it in from a macro perspective, you know, there are there's literally over 300,000 financial advisors. There's over 4,000 broker dealers. There's hundreds, even thousands in the RIA space. And it's just a fractured industry. And, and yet as an industry, uh, it's absolutely very profitable. It is, um, you know, reoccurring as, as the industry has continued to move to fee-based, it's reoccurring revenue with high profit margin and grows, especially if the market continues to grow, even a modest amount over a long period of time, there's growth inside this industry. So as an investor, which becomes private equity or publicly traded markets, as investors, they look at this and they say, look, this is a phenomenal investment. High retention of client base, high reoccurring revenue, that's sticky, and high margin. What's wrong with this business? And the answer is nothing. And so it's just generating a lot of outside investors. That outside investor pool is creating demand more so than there's supply. And when you have more demand than supply, it increases price. The benefit for an advisor is all of that trickle down, right? The trickle down becomes these transition deals that aren't just tied to cash, as we talked earlier, it's tied to demand. And higher quality, higher producing advisors have greater demand and firms are willing to pay more money for those advisors because they know they're going to grow their business and they know they're going to be long-term with the firm. You know, advisors on average don't move around except one every 10 years on average. And so, so the growth of the industry of, and the consolidation is going to continue, you know, and I think as we, as we dig into this, even in today's conversation, what's really interesting is as the consolidation will continue in the broker dealer space, it's created an entirely new channel that's competing with the legacy broker dealer because of the trend in fee-based, which is the expansion in the RIA space. We hear about deals being done, consolidation being done in the RIA space, and yet each year there are more new RIAs created than RIAs consolidated, which is definitely not the case in the broker-dealer space as it's an absolutely consolidating market share. I try, I, I try to tell financial advisors all the time, if, if they haven't taken a look at the RIA platform in the last six months, they don't have a true grasp of what's what's out there. Uh, what, as as someone that is researching the industry every single day, me and you, there's still names out there that I hear about every single day that I haven't heard the of. Same. RIAs that are reaching out to me that are that 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 are looking to work together and be and be part of our our, our solution set to to advisors. And there's just so many entrepreneur. The optionality is unbelievable. There's so many entrepreneurial advisors that have made the leap to independence. And have built an amazing value proposition around, you know, the concerns, the fears, the inefficiencies that they've seen throughout the process and solving that for other financial advisors before them. It's just been what we've been losing in the broker dealer space in terms of options because of firms merging has quadrupled in the RIA space. So really interesting to see. It is. And it's, there's a lot of firms that now look almost like their legacy, um, the legacy broker dealers, you know, from W2 firms that would appeal to wirehouses that are really built on an RIA chassis to, to independent broker dealers as platforms, uh, to aggregators, you know, that are actually generating new referrals of new prospects for 
their financial advisors to help them grow their business. The business models are pretty, it's, it's so varied and yet continues to be revolutionary, which again is driving all of that, right? These business models just tend to be profitable and and drives that investment. And so they're, they're then using that investment to continue to grow. And, and it's just becoming a wheel of, you know, kind of a cycle of development and growth. Uh, and, and one of the things that I always think of it's super, super, super important when evaluating firms is culture, you know, like-minded advisors, a like-minded approach to the client base. And, and there are firms for all advisors at this juncture. You know, if you're a wirehouse advisor looking at doing institutional business or ultra high net worth clients, there are solutions like that on the RIA platform. Uh, all the way down to advisors who may like, you know, alternative investments or who may need alternative investments for their client base. Uh, so it, it really is, there. there's a whole new dynamic. And these firms aren't small, you know, they're multi-billion dollar firms and they have, uh, you know, technology using robust technology tools. They're typically custodying with, you know, Fidelity or Schwab and they have phenomenal custodial relationships you know, which have great technology for the clients to be able to pull up their accounts. It, it's it's a compelling story. Yeah, I mean, a, another thing I've seen, Jeff, it, it, it's been a lot of the, the corner office, wirehouse advisors, top producing Edward Jones advisors. You've seen some of them transition to the RIA channel where maybe, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, that would have been extremely, extremely rare. Just going back to my example, you've seen people that were a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch. They were a financial advisor at Edward Jones. They remember all the fears in their head. They remember all the misconceptions. They've made the leap over to the RIA channel and they've built a platform that helps financial advisors you know, sleep at night during their transition and take all the reasons to say no out of a transition, whether that's just speaking the language of their old firm and also of the RIA world and best being able to help a financial advisor transition between the two and understand what the true differences are, building infrastructure from an office space stand, standpoint, helping them with marketing, helping them outsource some of the things that maybe they're really scared to do on the independent side that they fear is going to take them away from their clients, or just give them an enhanced transition experience as they've learned from experience transitioning other advisors, build a really solid war book of out of the box ideas to help their help them retain as much of their practice as possible without without ending up in the courtroom or lowering your chances of ending up in the courtroom. Um, have seen a lot of advisors move to that side that probably wouldn't have five or six years ago. Oh, no question. I mean, when we look, we think about some of that from from the five, seven, eight, ten years ago. It was the large multi-billion dollar wirehouse team, you know, one a year, if you will, maybe two a year. They start their own independent RIA and they would just continue to do their thing. Now what we're seeing is new firms being created from in many cases, these legacy wirehouses, as they look at the economic model of what does a wirehouse have to offer, you know, net of payout you know, and there's the branding and there's the office space and there's the product set. And when you unbundle the branding, the office space and the product set, you realize that you end up paying an enormous amount of money for all three of those, you know, and are they really worth the amount that you're paying? You know, how, how important is that branding for those larger teams? And so firms have built their new model around look, we can provide that economics and pass that back to the advisor and still give them the branding, the, you know, the product set and the office space. 
And, and that's what's become the real change in the marketplace. And what's really shifted from there is these firms don't really think of themselves as broker dealers. So while they have a broker dealer solution, they much more think of themselves as on the RIA platform, the RIA space, the custodial platform, you know, with the fee-based and the more, more flexible platforms, the more control an advisor has over the client experience, you know, something that maybe you want to spend a couple of minutes talking about, you know, when you're talking about the RIA platform, because it's a huge difference in the broker dealer world. Without a doubt. Yeah. So, so, so Jeff, back to what you were, back to what you were just saying, I actually had the pleasure of having uh, Alex Goss, the CEO of New Edge Advisors, one of the biggest RIAs in the industry on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he said, one of the biggest benefits of being part of an RIA is that you never have to be unhappy again. You know, not, not that the RIA channel is, is perfect, or you're going to have, you know, the perfect, you know, setup wherever you choose to go. But once your assets are over at a custodian, that's the last transition that you're 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 gonna have to make. So if you're at a plug-in RIA and you decide that you want to open up your own RIA or you want to move to another existing RIA that's already out there, as long as you as long as your assets are still at the same custodian with the firm that you move to, all your clients' accounts numbers stay the same. Their, their client portal is going to say the same. There is extremely minimal repapering. It's literally one-tenth of the work that it is transitioning from a broker-dealer to an RIA. So um, a lot of advisors that have been just tying it back into this conversation that have been through a few purchases that have been forced into a firm and maybe you know the, the, the rules or the game has been changed on them a little bit, they want to ensure to themselves that this transition is going to be the last one that's going to disrupt both their business and their clients. And they find a lot more comfort on the RIA channel because of that reason. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just that simple, you know, clients uh, it's that client relationship and keeping things simple for the client is what's really important for those advisors. So it's just, there's a lot there in the RIA space. I mean, I think that's what that that's the big eye opening moment here is with all the, with there's, there's a lot of money in this, in the industry in both the BD world and in the RIA world. Uh, and there's a lot of, while the BDs are consolidating, you know, that is, a, is create a whole new channel in the RIA space that have BD solutions. And so I think it's really important for people to understand the RIA world is not only for fee-based advisors. It's largely built around what we call hybrid or folks that need to have fee-based asset management solutions, as well as broker dealer or brokerage solutions. And the RIA world is, is, developed a solution set to accommodate those folks with incredible technology tools and resources and economics even. Jeff, I, I, I really appreciate the time. I really hope everyone enjoyed this podcast today. If you have any questions, uh, please feel free uh, to reach out to me. My contact information is at the bottom of uh, my YouTube channel and my podcast as well. My website is, is, is Corey Whalen. Dot com. And if you have any more questions about what we cover today in this conversation, we're here to talk. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. I really, really hope you find this podcast of value. If you do, please make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. 